Okay. I'm running on adrenaline here this morning. We had a great Alpha weekend yesterday, an all-day event. Alpha is a 10-week course where we really look at the basics of Christianity for those who are either coming back to the faith or new to Christianity. And right in the middle of the course, we do an Alpha weekend where we get to spend the whole weekend talking about the Holy Spirit and how to be filled with the Spirit. And it was a fantastic day. Uh, I think it really was impactful. It really, I think, helped people move forward in their faith and their journey and exploration to knowing who Christ is personally. So I just want to celebrate and thank all the leaders. Can we give a round of applause to the leaders who... Uh, we co-host this with another church called Central Community Church, and we have seven tables that are kind of sedaris tables, and so that's seven groups of leaders who are giving up 10 Thursday nights and, and then all day on Saturday yesterday. So those, those guys are fantastic. I just want to say thank you publicly. To, to all the work that you're doing to help people consider Jesus. Well, if you've got a copy of the scriptures, would you open it to the book of Colossians? The book of Colossians, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, there are some on the ends of your rows. You can ask somebody to pass it down to you. Colossians is in the New Testament, so it's going to be near the very end of the Bible. If you need to use the table of contents, there's no shame in that. I'm going to use it right now to make sure I find it. At Sedaris, we preach through, typically, books of the Bible, and we intersperse uh, more topical sermon series along the way, but this is our primary way of teaching, and it's been a while since we've been in what's called an epistle, which is really just a letter. So we call it a book, an epistle, a letter. Really what it is is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who is one of the key leaders in the early church, who had witnessed the resurrected Jesus, and he goes out on mission, starting new churches, uh, encouraging other churches that others had started. And, and here we have a church in Colossae who uh, was not started by Paul, but one of Paul's disciples, somebody that Paul brought to faith, probably brought him to the Alpha Course and, and taught him all about who Jesus was. Uh, this is uh, Epaphras, and he came into the family of God and then went back to his hometown, much like I was in Denver, and then came back to Seattle uh, and he came to start a new church in his hometown because there was not yet a church there. And then he goes back to visit his mentor, Paul, because there's some things happening in the church. And he's not sure how to deal with it. So he goes back to Paul. Paul at this time is in house arrest in Rome because he um, often got arrested and thrown in jail for preaching the gospel. And so Epaphras goes and, and sees him. He himself gets thrown into jail, and so Paul's like, we better write a letter for all these problems you brought to me since you can't bring it back yourself. This is the book we have called Colossians, or the letter to the church at Colossae. So we've been in this now. This is our fourth week, and we are finally going to get out of chapter one into chapter two. Fantastic. Fantastic. Now, I would really recommend that you, in your own personal time of reading scripture, just once a week, read through all four chapters of Colossians. Just try that once a week. It'll only take you a few minutes to read through it, but just so you're familiar with the overall argument, because these letters were meant to be read in one sitting, so you can see the full argument. It takes us a little bit more time to get through them because there's so much packed into them. And today, what we will see in our time of teaching is... A one of a three one of a three pronged approach that Paul will use to deal with the primary issue that is happening in this church. So the main reason that Epaphras came to him 
was false teaching. There was other teachers in the church. They were a part of the community, not from outside. There were people inside the church that were teaching something in addition to Christ. Like you need Jesus, but you also need this special mystery knowledge that I have. And they were teaching this. And so Paul, throughout his letters, is going to take a three-pronged approach to exposing that and defending why all you need is Christ. All you need is Christ. And what we've seen over the last couple of weeks is he gives the first prong of this argument, which is a, a um, positive articulation of who Christ is. Meaning, I'm going to tell you why these other people, that, that's the third prong, I'm going to tell you why these other teachers are teaching you something false. I'm going to expose the error and, and, and probably uh, the corrupt motivation of these false teachers within your midst. But, but, but first, I want to give you a positive articulation of why what I taught you and what Epaphras taught you was true. So that's what we've seen the last couple weeks. And that is this idea of the cosmic Christ, that in Christ, all things were created. Through Christ, all things hold together. And all things are putting, being put back together by Christ. And right in the middle of that, right in, uh, right in between the positive articulation of who Christ is, a re-explanation of the gospel as it was first presented, and an exposure of why this other teaching is false, which we'll see later in the letter to the Colossians, we have right here in this section that we're looking at today, which is verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 24, to chapter 2, verse 5, we see Paul doing something interesting here, which is he highlights his own resume, which is a highlight of his character. And he's going to say, listen, I know it's hard to tell who's telling the truth and who's missing something. I know that's hard. So look at me, look at my life, look at them, look at their life, and that will help you know why you can trust what I'm saying. Why you can trust a teacher. Why you can trust an evangelist. And the big conclusion that he'll come to in this is don't trust anyone unwilling to suffer. That's what he'll say. He says don't trust them. Now, suffering alone is not evidence of truth. Plenty of people suffer for things that are untrue. But it is, combined with these other prongs of his argument, is really, really important. Is the person presenting you truth willing to suffer? Are they willing to continue to say the same thing over and over and over again, even if they get thrown in jail? Even if they don't get a lot of positive reception? Even if they don't sell any books? Are they going to keep writing the same things? And Paul has a long track record of continuing to say the same thing. Point to Jesus, Christ alone. You need nothing else. So let's go ahead and read this section together, and then I'll break it down for us, okay? Starting in chapter 1, that's the big number is the chapter, and the small number is the verse. So chapter 1, small 24. Let's read now, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Wow. We'll come back to that. For the sake of his body, that is the church, 
of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Him, that's Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now look again. He highlights again his suffering. Verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, energy of God given to him by the Spirit, that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul had never met this church, this Colossians church. Why, he says, verse 2, chapter 2, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance, full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, he reiterates, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray and ask God to open the scriptures to us. Father, we need spiritual insight, spiritual wisdom that comes not through the natural but through the supernatural. And so we pray now that you'd send your spirit here to begin to stir in our hearts, uh, to, to well up our affections for your son Jesus and him alone, that nothing else would get in the way of us seeing him that as we look at the scriptures, that he would become more clear to us what he has done through the cross and the resurrection would become more clear to us and what you're doing in our own lives would become more clear to us as we look at your word that you've given to us, that you have written to us so that we might know this mystery which is now revealed in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen, amen. So. Here we go. Let's unpack these verses. Verse 24. Now, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. Important here. He's saying the suffering that is coming about for the work he's doing for them. We'll look at why that's so important here in a minute. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Which were many, right? Now what's, what's going on? It, is what Paul is saying here is that there is something inadequate with the sacrifice of Jesus. Is that what he's saying? That there's something that Jesus did not accomplish in his own death, life death, on the cross, his own sacrifice, and that we need what Paul is doing in order that we might experience the fullness of redemption and salvation and atoning work. Is that what Paul is saying? The answer is No. Paul, again and again and again in other letters and even within Colossians, will reaffirm that no, only 
by the blood of Jesus are we saved. And it is full and it is complete and there is nothing that you need to add to it. There's nothing that you can do to earn it. It's fully complete. He's already done it. The atoning work of the cross is enough. So what is Paul talking about? What, what is, it's, it's a very peculiar thing to say. What does he mean that in his own flesh, in his own body, he is filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions? Again, look at why he's doing this. For the sake of Christ's body, which is the church. Here's what I think Paul is saying. Perhaps what Paul is saying is this. God himself has preordained suffering for Paul. Knowing that the work of reconciliation that God wants to do in creation through the gospel, which must be taken from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, through God's people, that God has preordained suffering for Paul. He predicts it for Paul, he prescribes it for Paul, and he promotes it to fulfill the, Christ, the Christological plan for the universe. Remember we've talked about that. If you haven't been with us, what we've said, and this is often so confusing, and you can go back and listen to the first three sermons, um, but, but, but what I think is happening in Colossians is Paul is saying, God is trying to reconcile heaven and earth back together again as it always was meant to be. And the way that he does that is through Christ. So let me throw up a little slide that we used a couple weeks ago just to explain. There, there are three elements to who Jesus is. There's how the earth knows him, which is Jesus. There's how heaven knows him, which is the Son of God, the, third, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And then there's the way that the new heavens and the new earth connected together will know him, and that is as the Christ. So the Christness of Christ, which is the title of our sermon series, is all about the glue of Jesus. The Christness of Christ is the reconciling power of how God took on flesh in Jesus and now the two become one again as they were always intended to be. Sin split them and it it wasn't like a, I, I keep even using the analogy that we said don't think of it this way which is heaven is over here and earth is over here and, and they're not. It's actually more heaven is, is everything and then there's this little rebellious tumor it's kind of like Ryan talked about last week, the South during the Civil War, who, who thinks that they're this autonomous thing, but Abe Lincoln knows, no, you know, you're actually just a part of the United States. Stop pretending <laughs> that you're not. And there's reconciliation that needs to happen in which we stop rebelling and come back into the fullness, which is God's rule and reign in all things, okay? But that only happens through the blood of Jesus, the reconciliation of Jesus, and our participation in that by faith alone, by repentance of saying, I'm going to stop rebelling and acting as if I've got my own kingdom and start again participating by faith in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ Jesus. And so, back to this, I think what Paul is saying is God has preordained suffering even for us just as he preordained the cross of Christ even before the foundation of the earth as the means to reconciliation and there are things in Paul's life that are preordained by God in order that the kingdom can be forged back together again. 
How can this be? <laughs> How, wh- wh- why? why is it like this? Because what I'll tell you is I think God's preordained suffering for you and, and for me. And it's, it's part of his plan to bring heaven and earth back together again. Why would this be? Well, last weekend I went, just a normal weekend, went down to, to the forge and made myself a knife. No, this is real, I did this. Uh, and I was, got me thinking, it was for a bachelor party. Yeah, I don't get, I, I don't get invited to those very often anymore, by the way. It's part of the suffering of being a pastor. But uh, I got invited to this one. It might have been like a separate one that they had just for me, and then they had a real one later. I don't know. Don't tell me if that's true, okay? And uh, we went and actually took a horseshoe and turned it into a knife. So we got to use a forge and very hot fire, and then we could bend the metal. Uh, now, there's something even, even cooler than that that I've never gotten to do, but I know some people, and I, and I, I made sure my analogy worked here, my metaphor, um, but it's actually this heaven and earth is more, it's more like welding, taking two pieces of metal and welding them together. And that takes some intense heat. Now, here, here's what's really cool about welding, because that's what, what Christ is the welder. He's welding heaven and earth back together again by his blood. But, he, but here's the thing. It takes some intense heat, and at the end of it, if you weld it correctly... That, that joint is actually stronger than it was before it broke. If you do it right, that piece of metal is actually stronger than even before it broke. She's like, why would God allow his world to be broken and then put back together again? It's a mystery, but in Christ we see that what happens when it's broken and put back together in is it's stronger than it was before or if it had never been broken. Now, we could talk about that for hours, but I think it's true. Have you ever had a relationship that's gone through severe heat, maybe even broken, when it's forged back together again? you think that relationship's stronger or weaker than it was before? Stronger. I think there's something about God allowing it to break and the suffering of putting it back together in the person of Jesus that makes it now stronger so that it might last truly forever. And so Paul says, I think my own suffering was planned by God for a purpose, for your sake, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the kingdom of God coming back together with the kingdom of earth, for reconciliation. And so I rejoice in it. What? He rejoices in his suffering because he sees it rightly for what it is, a part of God's cosmic, eternal plan for something even better than a life without suffering could bring. Now, this isn't the only place Paul has said this. Throw up uh, for me, Whitney. Romans chapter 8, verse 17 says this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. 
when you received Christ. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. We get to be a part of God's family. We get to call him dad. That's what Abba means. It's, it's, it's this very intimate, personal, profound term for father. This is great news. We get to be part of the family of God. Let's keep reading, though. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Great news. And if children, then heirs. Fantastic. You get to be heirs with Jesus of the whole shebang. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided that. Wait a minute. Is that a typo? Did you put the right slide up? Is that a typo? No, that's the right one. <laughs> Whitney's literally in the back being like, did I do something? No, you didn't do it. No, this is, this is it. God wrote this. God told us, provided we suffer with Christ. Wait, what? Provided we suffer with Christ in order that we might also be glorified with Christ. Oh, it's a part of the plan. To be in God's family, to be in Christ's family, means that you become like Christ, which is to suffer like Christ, and to be glorified like Christ. Christ had to die before he could be glorified. He had to suffer before he could enact reconciliation. To reunite heaven and earth, to knit it together in love as we saw in Colossians here, means pain and suffering and affliction. The fire is necessary. It's God's plan. For Jesus, it was the cross, a suffering beyond words, beyond comprehension, not just physically. Many people died on a Roman cross, but to take upon himself the sin of the world So why would we expect anything less if we call ourselves Christians, which just means little Christs? That's what the word Christian means. And it was, when given to Christians, a derogatory term. And they accepted it fully, saying, thank you, call me a little Christ? That's a great compliment. So what's your little cross? It's not an accident. God's predestined, preordained affliction for you, that is a part of your unique and distinct, specific calling in the world. And it's different for all of us, but it's the same for all of us. And it's what unites us that we all suffer just like Christ because we're part of the family and we all will share in Christ's glory when he puts it all back together again. Have you ever thought about it that way? That your suffering is part of your distinct or unique calling in this world? He's like, I feel called to be a pastor or an accountant or an architect or a teacher. That's a part of your calling. Your suffering is also a part of your calling. So what does it mean to be a God-glorifying teacher? And what does it mean to be a God-glorifying sufferer? 
Both are a part of God's plan. So I'll also say this. Don't listen to health and wealth preachers that tell you following Christ will lead to abundance and goodness and wealth and security. They're lying to you. Now maybe you'll experience more of that than somebody else, but that is not the promise of God. The promise of God is that when you follow him, you will be an heir in his suffering and you'll be an heir in his glory. But you don't have one without the other. This is not very fun news. (laughs) Should have gone to a different church this morning. (laughs) Or watched on TV. (laughs) Um, They don't put sermons like this on TV, by the way. (laughs) So how can I be like Paul? We should want to be like Paul. How can I be like Paul and rejoice in my suffering? Here's the key word. Rejoice. Not love my suffering, not celebrate or promote my suffering, not invent suffering, and not deny suffering. That is not what Paul is saying. He's saying rejoice. Very unique. What does it mean to rejoice in your suffering? Well, the first thing that we have to say, and everything sort of falls off of it here, is that Paul sees his suffering as tied to a very important purpose. So he's not just suffering to suffer. He's suffering for you. He's suffering for the gospel. He's suffering for fulfilling the work that Christ began. He's suffering for the body, the church. So he sees his suffering, or at least the suffering that he says he rejoices in, is the suffering that is tied to purpose. Lasting, eternal work. Uh, let me give you an illustration of this. I, I know you've probably heard me say this so many times. I was a basketball player, and maybe you've even heard me say this. When you're a basketball player, most people do what's called sweet 17s or sweet 16s. Uh, they'd always have us do one extra, so sweet 17, which is just 17 times the, 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 the width of the court, so not the length, the width of the court, 17 times in one minute. It's a lot of running. It's usually at the end of practice, and you usually can't leave practice until you go. And uh, it, it was miserable. I did not love it. I did not celebrate it. I did not invent it. It was suffering. <laughs> and I didn't deny it. Uh, but I rejoice in it. In fact, I tell this story so often because it was kind of one of those very uniting things for our team. We all did it together, and everybody on the team had to finish. So, you know, I, I, I was, didn't always look like I look now. I was actually quite slender and a pretty good runner. And, um, but there were some bigger guys on our team, and they often would not finish in a minute. I almost always finished in a minute, but if they didn't finish, guess what? Back on the line, run again. It was unifying and rejoicing, but not just because we were sharing in suffering, but because we knew why the coach asked us to do it, which is if you're not in shape, you will not reach the goal of winning basketball games, going to the state tournament, winning the state tournament. So see, it's not, it's not masochism. It's not like I just loved feeling the pain of the sweet uh, 17 
or even sort of the unifying effect. I didn't just love that we were all suffering together. I love the fact that we were all pointed towards a goal and we knew this was a part of it and we trusted the coach who said this will help you get in shape. This will create unity as you pursue your purpose. So if you're just suffering without purpose, you will not rejoice. You'll do one of these other things. You'll love it or celebrate it, promote self-promotion of saying, oh, look at me, look at how much I suffer. But you, but you won't rejoice. So you've got to have a purpose. Suffering is a necessity to do the ministry of the word. The ministry, that is, the ministry of reconciliation between heaven and earth. It is impossible to do that work without suffering. Otherwise, why in the world did Christ suffer as he did? You see it? He's like, he needed to suffer. Why would we expect, if we're doing his work, that we wouldn't suffer? Jesus said this as well. And we don't have this on the screen. I'll just read it to you. These are Jesus' own words in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. He says this, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, come down from heaven, put on flesh, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised again. Jesus said this long before he was predicting what he had to do to bring reconciliation. So Jesus said, I must suffer. But wait, he says one more thing in the next verse. And then Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me and follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I like that first part as a Christian. I like knowing that Jesus has suffered for me. Don't like that second verse here where he says, no, you get to do it too. But you see, it's not suffering without a purpose. It's suffering for the purposes of the cross. And when we share in the suffering of redemption history, we also share in that glory. Focus on that. Focus on the hope of glory that Paul talks about here in Colossians. The hope of glory, which is Christ in you. I mean, how great is it that we suffer because Christ is in us? That is the hope of glory. If he's in us, we'll be glorified like him. So focusing on a purpose, suffering with Christ because he is in us and calling us to his things, we rejoice. But remember, we don't love. Paul, Paul is not saying, I just love being persecuted. I just love being in jail. It's fantastic. I don't have to do my own laundry. No, he doesn't love it. Don't suffer for suffering's sake. Don't seek out suffering, but receive it if Christ gives it to you. If he's like, here you go. I've got some suffering for you to participate in. If he does that, then you receive it gladly. But you know what? If he takes it away, you give it right back. We don't love it. We don't hold on to it. Is, is this making sense? And related to that, we, we, we rejoice, we don't celebrate. What's the difference? Paul is not celebrating his suffering. 
He, he's not doing this for self-promotion, right? He's not, he's not like, oh my goodness, look at me. Look how much suffering God's given me. He's given me so much suffering. He must think I'm super special. Oh, I'm the best. I'm the best. That is not how to read Paul here. He is doing this so that they might be encouraged and strengthened with all power and have endurance and patience with joy. That's why he's doing it. He says, I want you to know that this gospel that I've given to you has been given to you through suffering. But he's not celebrating it. He's not self-promoting himself. He's not trying to turn all the eyes on him so he gets all the credit. He's not creating a hierarchy of suffering. He's not promoting martyrdom for martyrdom's sake. If we celebrate or self-promote our suffering, that does not create unity like Paul desires. It creates disunity. It creates competition and comparison, not unity. When we rejoice in our suffering, whatever that might be, it creates unity. So we must not love our suffering, for if we do, or if we celebrate it or self-promote it, we are using suffering to do three things. Create tension for ourselves, create predictability for ourselves, or to create excuse for ourselves. And each of those, attention, predictability, you see why predictability, people do that with suffering? I actually learned to love my suffering because I can depend on it. I know exactly where it is. I know how to find it. I can go back to it time and time again. There are not many things in our lives that we can depend on like that. Suffering can become that. It can be so comforting. Attention is comforting. Finally, I'm seen because I suffer out loud. Or it's comforting to know I've always got this excuse in my back pocket because of my suffering. So don't seek, it's this weird form of comfort when, when we learn to love or celebrate our suffering. But we rejoice because it's given by the Father for his plan. And if he chooses to remove it, we freely give it back. We don't cling to it. So this is how you can know if you're loving your suffering more than rejoicing in it. Do you cling to it even when there is a way to get rid of it? Do you have this experience? There is an opportunity for me to give my suffering away, to get out of my suffering, but yet I don't move forward towards that. Why, why, why would I do that? Well, because you've come to love it. And even though you know, or you think you know in your mind that it would be better without it, you love it so much that you cling to it. If you realize that that's happening to you, maybe you're realizing that right now, that you have something in your, some suffering, that you know the way out, but you're clinging to it, and you've loved it instead of rejoiced in it, just stop doing that. Just repent and say, I'm going to get, let this go. I'm going to take the way God's created, created out of this suffering, I'm going to take, take him up on that offer, and I'm going to go and, and follow Christ, and I'm going to rejoice that my suffering is over. I think this is a real thing. And we can only rejoice knowing that the Father has ordained it for a kingdom purpose if we also know that we have not invented it for ourselves. You know what I mean by inventing your suffering? 
Like there are some sufferings that God will give you and then there are some that you have invented for yourself. I'm just give you some silly ones to help you see this and then you're gonna have to do the dig, do the hard work to dig and find out what it really is. Americans are the best, aka the worst, when it comes to this. When you're binge streaming and your internet goes out, that's not suffering. <laughs> Feels like it, but it's not. When you order the halibut and the waiter comes back and says, we're out of halibut, but we have salmon, that's not suffering. I know you really wanted whitefish tonight, but just eat the salmon. When you're stuck in traffic, sitting in your futuristic driving machine that allows you usually to drive at speeds over 60 miles an hour, but now you're only going 20 miles an hour, that's not suffering. It's unfortunate. When you're sitting in the warmth of your tiny and expensive 700 square foot Seattle apartment, and you're thinking about all of your friends in Nebraska. <laughs> that's, that's not suffering. When your boss tells you that you have to postpone your vacation to Hawaii because there's a fire drill at work, so you're going to have to do that later in the summer. That's not suffering. You see... We invent suffering. Don't do that. Inventing suffering is always related to one of three thieves. And these thieves love to use invention as their means to get you off track. The first thief is comparison. You probably heard it. Comparison is the thief of joy or the thief of rejoicing. Well, they, they've got this, and I don't have this. Well, look at that, and it, it's a thief of rejoicing. The second, nostalgia. Do you remember when? Oh, my goodness, back in the day, it's a thief of joy and rejoicing. And then the third, this is a more personal. Satan is a thief of joy and rejoicing. I mean, think of the garden, the very beginning of the Bible, when sin enters the world, when rebellion enters the world. Ryan talked about this last week. Satan is really just doing that, inventing suffering. Oh, Adam and Eve, look, look, look. Oh, gosh, I know you can eat all the trees of the garden, but that tree, that's the best fruit, and you don't get to eat it. This must be so hard for you. Oh, yeah, this is tough. I mean, I wonder what that tastes like. Oh, poor David. This must be so hard for you. I hear that every day. Sometimes it's comparison. Sometimes it's nostalgia. Sometimes it is a personal attack from Satan or his army telling me, to invent some kind of suffering so that I can loathe and self-pity and not accomplish the work that God has given to me. Each of these thieves, comparison, nostalgia, Satan himself, invent suffering that is not suffering and the result is catastrophic. 
because it keeps you from doing the work of Jesus. So just stop inventing. If you need help, ask somebody, here's my situation. Is this real suffering? If not, don't rejoice in it. Don't cling to it. Don't love it. Just see it for what it is, an invention, and move on. Now, having said that, each and every person has real suffering. I think Paul's saying that. We will each have our own suffering. Jesus is saying that. If you follow me, you will have suffering. So to deny suffering is equally as catastrophic because you don't get a chance to give glory to God for letting you have it and helping you through it. So um, have you done this too, denying? I, I've said this before. I have I've, I had historically a very bad stomach that has created intense pain. And I remember in high school, sort of at the, at the pinnacle of this stomach pain, I used to sit and try to convince my mind that I was not feeling the pain. I thought if I thought hard enough, I could think the pain away. That was foolish. It never worked. I was trying to deny the suffering instead of rejoicing that God always met me in those moments in really unique and profound ways. And some of you have really hard lives, some, some harder than others. God doesn't give everybody the exact same suffering. Some of you have hard histories and backgrounds, and you've been through some things in your childhood. Some of you have hard physical issues. Some have hard mental challenges, some hard emotional challenges. Some of you have very, very challenging and hard marriages. Some of you have hard children. Some of you have really hard family dynamics. Some of you have really hard job situations. All of these can be real suffering that God has given you so that you might rejoice in them. But you don't deny it. And the first thing you do before you rejoice in it is you lament it. See, God doesn't want you to love it or celebrate it. He wants you to lament and say, this is really hard. I wish I didn't have it, but I will rejoice in it knowing that God is with me in it. And here's the kicker. And knowing that it will not last forever. You cannot rejoice in your suffering if you do not believe in the reality of the resurrection. It is the reality of the resurrection that makes this whole thing go. Paul is not saying, I'm just so glad I get to suffer forever. He's saying, I'm so glad, I'm rejoicing that I'm getting to participate in the reconciliation process of Jesus Christ, the resurrection process, which will come ultimately to an end, and then I get to be fully without suffering and pain in the presence of God forever with a new physical body. No longer will I have this thorn in my flesh that Paul talks about, but I will be made whole, and that's why he can rejoice. Listen, if you don't believe in the resurrection, and, and we exist as a church, maybe you don't. We, we want to help you to consider these truths. So we're glad that you're here, but I get it. If, if there's no resurrection... If it's just suffering upon suffering, then you should not rejoice. In fact, let me just tell you, if there's no resurrection, you should fight tooth and nail, get your claws out to avoid all suffering as much as possible and steal from other people. Steal from them. Make them suffer. If there's no resurrection. It makes no sense to me why you would not do whatever it took to avoid suffering 
if there is no resurrection because it means that you're suffering in a short, meaningless, purposeless existence on earth. So fight, steal, cheat your way to comfort and happiness. Do all that. But if you're following Jesus because you know that he's risen from the dead and it won't always be like this, you should give generously. You should suffer for others. You should hold and restrain yourself from taking that which you could take because you know this is but a momentary affliction. The cross is happening, but the resurrection is just three days away. Some of the greatest moments in my life have been the hours and moments following the passing of a kidney stone. I've had 10 to 15 kidney stones. Hard to know, exactly. Very, very painful. But after like the fourth, <laughs> I, I kind of got to the point where I'm like, there's coming a moment through modern medicine or just the passing of this stone that I'm gonna feel a little glimpse of heaven <laughs> because the suffering was so bad. I mean, I, have you experienced this? It's like the moment <laughs> when the pain left, when the stone went home to be with all the other pieces of the ocean, because they're like these little pieces of sand. I was like, this is bliss. <laughs> it's really good. And in a weird way, I mean, it's, it's very hard in the moment to do this, but there's this really weird piece of rejoicing that's happening in the background being like, all of them have passed so far. This one's probably going to pass. I mean, one, it took surgery. <laughs> but most of the other ones I got to pass on my own. Now it's like this weird, this is like too much information. Now it's like this weird <laughs> challenge that I have. I tell Allie, because, you know, even if you go to the ER and they give you a little bit of, you know, um, truth serum and, and so you relax your body and all this stuff. Is that what it's called? Um, you know, that's one way to do it, but that always costs at least $500 deductible. So now it's like this challenge. I think I can pass it on my own. So I'm curled up in the fetal position on the floor, and Allie's like, I think we should just go. I think we should just go. I, I can do it. It's coming. I know. Serenity now. Okay. <laughs> if it's true that the stone will pass, that it will roll away for all of us, then we can rejoice, even thinking about that moment. We don't even know what that feels like to be free from pain and suffering, but it will come. Amen? That is such good news. I should rejoice in that, even though right now it burns. It burns. Serious. Drink your water. Okay, look at, final thing, final thing. Look at verse Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, one more time with me, Read it real fast. Chapter 2, 1 through 5 again. For if I want to know, so, so, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have, been, have not seen me face to face and that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is what? Which is Christ, in whom are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. 
These plausible arguments, we'll get to them in a second. Listen, they're plausible, meaning they're hard to discern whether they're false. They're not obviously false. They're explanations for what? For the mystery. The mystery of what? Well, in part, I'll say the mystery of suffering. Why is there suffering? Why do some suffer and others don't? How do you remove suffering? Why isn't God removing it now? Or why is he removing it for this person? See, people will come to you with plausible arguments and the, and the way they're going to get in the door and get you to give them your money and to get, their, get your votes and your attention is because they're going to give you plausible arguments to remove your suffering. It's the best way to get a following. And Paul's actually saying the opposite. You'll know that you're following the right way because of your suffering. And the mystery, that mystery, the mystery of suffering, the mystery of why God hasn't removed it, the mystery of why some suffer more than others, the mystery is Christ. He explains it all. That God is not unfamiliar with your suffering. He took on flesh and suffered with us. That God is not distant and far off. He is not removed from your suffering. He is with you. Christ is in you. And the mystery that suffering does not last forever the answer is in Christ, and Christ alone. The mystery is revealed, Paul says. You don't need anything else. You just need to look to Christ. He explains it. Doesn't mean it's not hard, but you should know you're not alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for not staying distant and far removed from our suffering, but coming near to us. By taking on flesh, you've connected heaven and earth once again, but it came at a price. A great, painful, soul-wrenching, spirit-wrenching, trinity-separating cost, the cost of the cross. But you did not stay dead. You rose again, showing, proving, modeling for us the way to reconciliation, redemption, and the renewal of all things which comes through suffering. We pray, God, that we would be ministers of this reconciliation by being willing to step into the suffering that you have ordained for us, not inventing new suffering or looking for suffering or loving our suffering or denying it, but stepping into it honestly and, and giving ourselves fully for the purposes and the causes of Christ, which is the reuniting of heaven and earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.